0: Welcome to the In All Things Podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's creative world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are talking with writer and multi-ethnic ministry leader Chandra Crane about her new book on multi-ethnicity, Mixed Blessing. Now. Topics like this, insofar as they seek to move forward by recognizing and valuing cultural difference, rather than pretending that it doesn't matter, can sometimes become contentious. We might feel misunderstood, or we might disagree on the right terminology, or on how to move towards unity amidst our differences. But these conversations matter, in part because Scripture is very clear in giving us a vision of the Church as a mixed multitude composed of members of every tribe and tongue and nation, and of the kings of the earth carrying their cultural riches into the eternal city. And if the church is meant to make imperfect models of that good world that is to come, as Lewis Meads has said, we have to get a better handle, not just on how we can make multi-ethnic institutions, but on what it means to embrace multi-ethnicity itself. What does it mean to see and steward and celebrate multi-ethnicity? That's the theme question for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. I am the son of a white father and a Filipino mother, raised in the suburbs of Kansas City. And though I had a wonderful childhood, I also knew that I was different than the mostly mono-ethnic white students who were my friends, classmates, and neighbors, I could tell you stories of the sorts of things I heard growing up. Two memories stand out, both from junior high. The first memory is of meeting my locker mate, whose first words upon seeing me next to him were, Wow, you have one of those flat noses. I didn't know how to respond to that, but he didn't give me time, following up with this question. Do you know karate? Yes, I lied, If he was already determined to see me a certain way, I might as well lean into the stereotype so that he would know not to mess with me. The second memory is of the first time I threw a punch, also in seventh grade. My friend group was challenged by another group of boys, and they were goading the smallest member of their group to pick a fight with one of us. So he approached me and said, I want Chinese boy. Now, based on the stereotype, I thought. Wouldn't you want to fight someone else? I wished in that moment that I really did know karate, but he pushed me, and I punched him. I'm happy to report that no one was actually harmed in the course of the fight, but those two juvenile anecdotes capture a bit of the ordinary burden of growing up looking different than most everyone else. In college, I attended, and then served on the staff of a predominantly Filipino church, and there I found myself similarly to be an outsider. Unable to converse in Tagalog in more comfortable and majority culture spaces, I was affectionately called a coconut. Brown on the outside, white on the inside. During this time, I also had a series of unrelated but painful encounters with what we might call whiteness, which assumed that mono-ethnic whiteness was normative, and thus I was an aberration. I heard an argument for racial separation, my separation, made on the basis of scripture. God made the races, I was told. There must be a reason. So stay in your place. I do not for a moment believe that I have borne anything near to the burden carried by others, especially my black brothers and sisters. I share my experience rather to give a personal edge to the questions explored in this episode. And there are a range of stories that others could tell that fall all over the map of not quite fitting in with a dominant culture. I'm 40 years old now, and as a resident of the Midwestern United States with dark hair and brown skin, I can't count the number of times I've been asked some version of the question, where are you from? Or even more explicitly, what are you? I take these questions to be primarily a matter of curiosity. Desire to place me, perhaps, even to hear a bit of my story. But when you are repeatedly asked this question wherever you go, you begin to get the sense that though you are welcomed, you are still considered an outsider. Someone who is clearly not from here. Now, all of us make snap judgments about the people around us, especially those we perceive as being different than us. But how do we learn to do better at living with and leaning into multi-ethnicity? To help us with this question, you're talking with Chandra Crane, a writer and leader in helping Christians have more intelligent conversations about multi-ethnicity and the gospel, and helping all of us to see the blessing of being mixed, so that we can be a mixed blessing to our communities and to the world. I want to welcome Chandra Crane to the In All Things podcast. Chandra is the Mixed Ministry Coordinator for Multi-Ethnic Initiatives for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and one of four regular writers for our online journal, In All Things. In addition to writing regularly for us, she is the author of a new book, Mixed Blessing, from InterVarsity Press. Chandra, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
0: So you've written a book that touches my experience quite personally as well as a person of mixed ethnicity, half Filipino, half white, but who also served for seven years in a Korean American context and who now lives among the Dutch uh, here in Northwest, <laughs> Iowa. and uh, I could say more about that in a moment. But you opened the book, and you had me from page one because you start by taking us into your thought process. Whenever somebody asks you the question, "Where are you from?" or more pointedly, "What are you?" Mm-hmm, and so I wonder mm-hmm. if you could just recount a bit of that, a bit of what goes through your head when you're asked that question.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Justin. I, I loved reading your introduction when we were exchanging bios earlier because. I love the ability, I think, um, that mixed folks often have, that multi-ethnic folks often have to also be multicultural by necessity. And so I love knowing that um, you have that fluidity in where you've served, where you're serving now. Um, I think also that sense of humor that comes from from being multi-ethnic and multicultural. And that is some of the thought process that goes through when I'm asked that question now but it wasn't always that way, right? It starts out as very much confusing, traumatizing, frustrating. Um, I'm honestly, I'm trying to remember what my first recollection is of being asked that question. I think it all kind of swirls together at this point. I'm not entirely Mm. certain that I remember the first time I was asked that. But in general, what goes through my mind is just that sense of not even anymore, what do they mean? But I think just instinctively okay, how am I going to handle this today? Like kind of that first initial gut reaction of what kind of mood am I in today? How traumatized am I feeling today? How snarky am I feeling? How weary am I feeling? Um, And just that instinctual gut punch that quickly becomes that instinctual gut check of how am I going to answer this in a way that is gospel-centered, which might also mean pointed, right? Not how can I answer this nicely? But how can I answer this in the way that God wants me to at this moment, what, which might actually have some heat with it? What goes through my mind, I think, is just that, like I said, almost instinctive, which I'm sure you can really resonate with this, almost instinctive sense of not what are they thinking, but what am I thinking? How am I feeling in this moment? Because maybe I don't even know. What part of my culture am I most identifying with? Who am I today in terms of my roles as author, wife, mother? teacher, seminarian, et cetera.
0: Yeah. I always think whenever I, I reflect on those questions, where are you from? I think Kansas, right? Or <laughs> and, and what are you human? You know, it's right? sort of like those, you just want to say those kind of quick snarky answers, you know, sort of what's underneath that is somebody looking well at, at the best interpretation, just looking to place you, right. Looking mm-hmm. to, to figure out a little bit of your backstory or especially here in Northwest Iowa, how did you end up here? Right. Mm, um, mm-hmm. I You don't fit my category. Um, so could you share just for the sake of our listeners who haven't read your book, what, what is sort of part of that backstory for you?
1: Yeah. So I grew up in New Mexico. Um, so I am at heart a Southwest girl, which is interesting now that I am in the deep South, which the Southwest I think is all of the relaxedness of the South in terms of not as fast paced, kind of just meandering along, um, but none of the polite niceties of the South (laughs) very much tell it like it is, right? So it's all of the um, honesty of the North, but with the calmness of the South. Um, which means I don't fit in either in the north or the south. <laughs> I, I managed to to be culturally um, distinct in both places. I grew up in specifically in the southwest as well in New Mexico, which is a very mestizo state. Right, so it is that intersection of culture between the Spanish conquistadores and the native tribes, between later the um, settlers um, from Mexico, as well as those that the border crossed, those who had been there for generations, and then obviously um, the more white settlers coming in. Um, so, New Mexico is a really unique place, and in some ways, I realized later on that that actually was an easier place to grow up as a mixed white and Asian person who doesn't actually have any Latin ties in that mm. sense because it's quite normal. I think in some ways it's similar to Hawaii. It's quite normal to be mixed mm. in the Southwest mm. right? That's not as unusual. And so I actually had a lot of mixed friends who were Hispanic or Chicano um, and white. So all that that's my culture. some in some ways I reflect on that more often when someone asks where are you from? as far as what am I, right? What is my ethnic makeup? My birth father was a Thai national. My mom is white American, Scottish and Irish from what I understand. And so they met in college, their marriage didn't last. And so then my mom, just because I need to check off all the boxes, apparently my mom remarried uh, the man who adopted me and became my dad, who was a black man. So ethnically I have white and Thai heritage Culturally, I have an affinity toward um, Native and uh, Latina culture. And then also culturally, I have this tie to the Black family that I was raised in. Yeah, it's a lot, right? And so, again, as you well understand, all of that being from the Midwest for you, Justin, being um, now with the the Dutch, all these things. Well, to jump ahead, I think one of the most special things about my upbringing and about my ethnic and cultural background is that it makes me more aware of the fact that there is not a single story Mm. that is what I have learned to love about my ethnic and cultural background is that it can't be told all in one thing Mm. that it is and I think in a way that I've really been honored by learning more from Native brothers and sisters from Native siblings who are Christians but still firmly Native there's something beautiful about a meandering story and not worrying about telling everything in an efficient way. Right. Um, that I think I really appreciate more now, even than 10 years ago.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So one answer, one charitable answer to the question could be how much time do you have? Right. Indeed. Time (laughs) to get to know me, to understand, you know, uh, or do any of us, are we willing to make time for that? Uh, tell me a little, bit, a little bit more about the title of the book. It's uh, it's called Mixed Blessing, which cuts mm-hmm. several different ways as you mm-hmm. unpack in the text. So, can you tell us a little bit more about the ambivalence that lies behind that title? I see a sense in that both, you know, you've already used the word the language of trauma as well mm-hmm. as joy, right? Um, and so, can you tell us a little bit more about why you called the book Mixed Blessing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love that you introduced the word ambivalent to the discussion because I don't think I'd ever used that word mentally before as I pondered uh, the book. T- the book's title. It definitely came out of some wordplay. The book that originally inspired me to begin asking myself these questions about my multi-ethnic journey, to begin wondering what that had to do with being a Christian um, that first told me actually Jesus was mixed and that means something with Sandy Fraser's Check All That Apply. And so I bought every copy of that book I could find. I was heartbroken when it went out of print. I started haunting my friends at Inversee Press. And long story short, when I came to the point where then I was asked to consider writing the book for the next generation, I wanted something as clever and as poignant as Sunday's title, right? Check all that apply, referring to the 2000 census being the first time that any of us could check all that apply, That before then, we had to check one or the other. And so I wanted something that powerful and that almost whimsical, though, that was both a clever bit of wordplay, but also told a story in and of itself. And so, right, mixed blessing, that it is a mixed blessing to be mixed um, is a huge part of it. That mixed blessing singular, because I wanted to comment on mixed blessings is a phrase that we're used to hearing right? Oh, well, those are mixed blessings. I don't think we say mixed blessing quite as often. And so I think Mm. that is a little bit jarring to the ear, like, oh, wait, there's mixed blessing singular, which I think for me really points to the kind of cutting against the norm, which is multi-ethnic, which we can talk about that more later. Multi-ethnic is what often gets used. It feels like it's the only moniker available to we mixed folks, but multi-ethnic is almost always referring to groups. Right. And so even in my own organization, when someone says something about multi-ethnic, they mean a community. They mean a group of people. They mean a group of monoethnic people making up a multi-ethnic community. Hmm. And so I loved taking mixed and turning on its head and saying, actually, we're going to reclaim the word mixed. Right. In some ways to say, actually, this word that was meant for evil or has been applied in a derogatory way yes, I am mixed. And that's beautiful. That's not a curse. It's a blessing, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's so much there. Um, I think what I loved most about it was as I was brainstorming ideas, I really asked the Lord, would you give me a good word? I need a good word to write this book I still, and I still do, at the time I was thinking, I need a good word to believe that I can write this book, that I am the one to write this book. Mm. (laughs) I need some reassurance here. This is not a fool's errand. And so when he gave me the title Mixed Blessing, I just knew Mm. that was a word being spoken over me, Mm. that this book is a mixed blessing. Writing a book is not much fun. As anyone who has done any sort of academia, writing, anyone who's done any sort of hard labor, you know, building an entire house or raising an entire family or chairing an entire department or writing an entire book or an entire thesis or, you know, any of these things that we do with our hearts or our hands and we pour ourselves into is a mixed blessing it's painful. Mm-hmm. It hurts. It's a lot of hours away from the people you love or too many hours with the people you love. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so it really felt like the Lord was saying, this is what I've given you. This is my blessing to you. You will be a blessing to others. Yeah. It will not be easy, but it is worth it. And and that was so sweet and so confirmed when I actually got to interview Sandy Frazier for the book. And she said to me, I've been praying for the next generation and you're it." And then when my editor Al She said, I've been praying and you are the one. This is your time to write this word. And then to have the Lord affirm all of that and say, and this is not just your story. This is the story of so many. And I've picked you to help other people tell their story. Yeah. All of that summed up in a title, right? And just so powerful and and uplifting and affirming and also a little bit terrifying. As again, any endeavor should be.
0: Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, it's it's there's few books that you can actually put that much into a title, right? Into two <laughs> right. words, where you have both the sense that it is a blessing for me to be mixed and to be multi-ethnic, and I am a mixed blessing. You know, the, mm-hmm, I, there's mm-hmm. the sense that my person, uh, that the, the Lord has given me something has given you something to offer to to the church and to the world. Maybe to make that a little bit more concrete, you know, one of the major realizations I've had over the past five years, I have sort of internalized this outsider status. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize it until I got ordained in the CRC recently, or I moved my ordination from a non-denominational to, to the CRC, and I felt all this resistance to it. Hmm. And, and I thought, why am I feeling all this resistance? Uh, and I and I realized that part of it was because I felt like I was almost giving up my outsider status that I really enjoy, mm. you know, and, you know, and there's reasons for that, including some of the communities that I've, I've been in and, you know, my own ethnic story, uh, but there are benefits to being an outsider, right? You can be in a community and you don't have to carry their bag, you know, the baggage that they have. You're just visiting, you know, you can just comment mm-hmm. on things and it's not you, you know, it's, you don't have to own things, but it's also lonely uh, to be mm-hmm. an outsider. And so I wonder, you know, maybe I should be paying you for therapy or something like that. But- <laughs> But I wonder if you can speak to that experience uh, from your work and research on the feeling of being an outsider and I guess the mixed blessing of that uh, from being a multi-ethnic person.
1: Yeah, that's so good. It's funny that you mentioned the research because I think that's the thing that jumps out to me is I went from being an insider in just one of the people trying to work my way through to being at the forefront in some ways of mixed folks trying to figure our way through. So in some ways I went from being an outsider to being the insider. Hmm. Um, Now I'm apparently the expert, which my editor tries to remind me from time to time, not in a look at you, but in a, would you stop doubting yourself? And would you stop doubting the Lord, please? Hmm. You are the expert here. You've done the work done the hundreds of hours of research and interviews and writing and praying and weeping and, so, yeah. So again, it's this strange dynamic of, in some ways, I've transitioned now that I wrote this book from one place into another. But in some ways, now I'm the outsider because I kind of stand apart. I'm not just one of the people telling my story anymore. And so that's that's very strange and it's very interesting in the context of what you're asking as far as the benefits of being an outsider of being able to say, I don't have to own this trauma, right? I think that's when you you talk about people's baggage and being able to say for my own preservation of sanity, for my own ability to divest myself of unhealthy whiteness, but still try and figure out what it means that I have white heritage. You know, I'm an outsider to this conversation and I don't have to sit here and just get sucked up into it. But then that loneliness, well, do I really want to be able to to sit like that? Is it worth it? And I think one of the things I love most about the mixed community as I've discovered it, as I'm being entrusted to help create it, which again feels absurd to be able to say, Mm -hmm. is that because we reject false binaries, there are some true binaries in the world, right? We are not infinite, we do have to choose sometimes. We have to choose whether to be in one physical place or another, right? We have to choose whether to do this action or another because we are bound by space and time. We are not God, we are created, not creator. But I think the lie that monoethnic culture wants to tell us is that we have to choose our ethnicity, right? And instead, when we push back that on that and say, actually, no one has to choose one ethnicity. You white folks or you monoethnic minorities you you actually you if you stop for a second you realize you do have a multitude of stories within you right mm-hmm. you have a multitude of heritage heritages and ancestry within you i love being able to be an insider outsider right i think i think is that's my answer is realizing that we don't have to pick and choose because we're all supposed to be outsiders we're all supposed to be strangers and sojourners in this kingdom as we're following christ and because christ was himself the ultimate insider outsider right? That is what I discovered in some very lonely hours of research, mm. in some very lonely hours of my sweet husband taking my kids for a walk so that I could get some work done. Mm. Or, you know, they're all asleep in bed and I'm still up because I've got a deadline for writing. Um, or, or even things like this, where I'm, I'm, you know, in this case, I'm getting interviewed, which is fun, but doing the podcast, that, the Mixed Blessing podcast, doing interviews that I did for the book beforehand, Yeah, there's a loneliness in it. And even I, as an introvert, feel that loneliness very keenly. And I think the Lord has a word to say to us come be an outsider with me. Come to the garden and stay awake and pray with me. Come withdraw and come sit uh, at the feet of the Father with me. Let's be outsiders together that we may love, right? And become all things to all people. Mm. Um, And that's why I love this question, is because. I looked over it beforehand, obviously I thought through some of it, but even now in our conversation, Justin, I'm seeing things in a slightly different light, even just knowing your story a little bit better, right, and having this conversation with you, which I think is the ultimate insider in a non-negative way, the ultimate insider part of the kingdom, right, Mm -hmm. that the kingdom is community, that we're not saved into singleness in the sense of our own individual salvation, we're saved into a family, we're saved into a, a group of outsiders, And I love how we, you and I, and those of all of us who are in this mixed community, how we tell that story just in our bodies, just in our heritages of actually guys, we're all outsiders and we're supposed to be.
0: Yeah. There's something that's been really, you know, I think kind of having that outsider status as you described it as there's not a single story and there's sort of a complexity that you're drawn to. Uh, or that you have eyes to see that maybe others don't have to see. And, and I think that, you know, everywhere I've been, I have been attracted to the outsiders in that community, perhaps because, you know, I sort of have so internalized that sense of, of being an outsider and yet also recognizing the, the need to, um, to come in, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and trust somebody uh, that trust yeah. communities to, to make you at home, um, so I think like navigating there, there's a really beautiful story that you tell in your book about, I think it was at a conference and everybody <laughs> broke up in their ethnic groups and you just kind of stood yeah. there and you said, where do I go? Right. Yeah. And um, just feeling that, you know, feeling that question of, of well, where do I go? You know, that every, everything from people thinking that you are, you know, trying to place you in a different ethnicity to not even thinking you have any sort of, eth- you know, mixed ethnicity, right. you know, all of those right. sort of, you know, back and forth that you feel, oh, somebody's saying like, oh, I just thought you were white, you know? Right. Um, and uh, just always asking the questions of, well, how are people receiving me? How are they relating to me? Why did I get invited to that meeting? Why did I get asked to be on, you know, you know, the sort of questions that you always sort of ask. And I just felt it, w- it was just really helpful for you to accumulate all these stories uh, of of different people, if for no other reason, just to let us know that you're, you're not alone. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. in the, in the sort of outsider status, one of the things that your book does try to do um, is make some careful distinctions. And so I'm going to give you a couple of pairs of things. And if, you know, not to give the definitive word on these things, but (laughs) how would you distinguish just for our listeners, this can be a very fraught conversation. And so Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. some of these terms are a little bit loaded. And so just so that you can help us understand or have more intelligent conversations about these things. uh, So the first one is ethnicity versus race. So your book focuses primarily on ethnicity, but how would you distinguish between uh, ethnicity and race?
1: This is one of the distinctions where I stand on the shoulders of so many scholars who've written about ethnicity and race. Race is a social construct that is pretty common uh, knowledge to anyone who has has done any sort of of research into race. Um, But as I mentioned, still one that affects us, right? It still affects us. It's still a significant. It still matters. It has still been turned into a reality which I think people often, it leads them to assume that ethnicity is not real either. But ethnicity is not only real, it's very biblical. So we see the ethnos, which is the nations in the Bible, um, both in, in the Greek, but also in the Hebrew, in the original, in the Old Testament. It speaks of those nations. It speaks of the clans, the cultures, the tribes. It can be defined as something as clear-cut as a certain people group who all are related. It could be a little more loosely defined as a certain people group who all share the same language or the same land. It gets a little blurry there too, right? I think the main distinction that I make and that uh, most other scholars, especially biblical scholars, make between ethnicity and race is that ethnicity is based more on culture and more on heritage than it is on what we term as race, because race in the end is really just skin tone and other features. So there is something to race that drives apart and says us versus them. There is something to ethnicity that I think when rightly applied, when done in the spirit with which God intends and intended it, brings together and says us and us, even if the us on one part is different. Right? It's this this because of Revelation 7, because of Revelation 21, because it is every tribe and language and nation, because it is people gathered from around the world, around time and space, around history, the church universal, that doesn't all look the same. Mm. Right? And so there's something beautiful to me about ethnicity, which says, actually, God has always wanted a diverse church. He's never wanted a monolithic, mono-ethnic yeah. church. Yeah. Um, this is always in his desire to bring in the nations from, from the beginning of time. And certainly that was his promise to Abraham.
0: Okay. Here's the next one. Cultural appropriation over against cultural appreciation.
1: Yes. So this one, I feel more and more confident in my life and taking a little more credit for, um, certainly building on the work of Christine Edmondson, but I really do think that I was one of the first. And again, this feels absurd, but here we go. One of the first scholars to set cultural appropriation up against cultural appreciation and to really give those monikers and to give it as that binary pair, which again, we don't traffic in false binaries as mixed people, but there are binaries in the world. There are things, certain things that are mutually exclusive. Cultural appropriation can be a pretty hot buzzword, especially here and now, which I think is good as awareness grows. Cultural appropriation being when you take something From another culture that is not your own. And even if you do it in a positive way, you don't give credit where credit is due. You don't receive it as a gift. You take it Mm -hmm. and you don't let it inform you of that other culture. It is taken purely for your own selfish growth or enjoyment or pleasure or even good things, right? But it's not done in a way that, again, is trying to transcend boundaries, but is reinforcing boundaries cultural appreciation as I've termed it and as I hope is uh, an entirely new category and I hope is helpful to the church is the idea of because God has always intended there to be different cultures because there is obviously right now different cultures and as you and I and I think many other Christians firmly believe there will always be varying cultures and there will be diversity in the new heavens and the new earth in a way we can't understand but we will not all be whitewashed into one culture someday there will still be distinctions in the new heavens and the new earth. Cultural appreciation is in some ways reflecting that future reality into the here and now by finding out more about other cultures and celebrating those things. We can all do that, right? We all, no matter ethnicity, no matter whether we're a majority culture or minority culture, we all have the ability to either appropriate culture for ourselves in a selfish way, in a destructive way, or to take that extra step and do a little more work. And I think it really, at that point, it is that heart sense of, am I receiving this as a gift or am I taking it for my own, out of a sense of power and control?
0: The next one is cultural stereotype versus cultural prototype. Yeah,
1: so I I also um, pushed into this um, so, Eleanor Roche has prototype theory, which is um, kind of from a branch of linguistics. But when I started researching some of what I'd already heard again, you know, still very much building on the work of those who came before me this idea of stereotype versus prototype, as I was starting to do even my original thinking in the book and then especially my research, just realizing when you start to get out of the non literal sense of the black and the white of something and go into the gray, it becomes very confusing very quickly what is good and what is bad, right? So as I'm asking myself, okay, how can we not stereotype, for example, Filipinos, or for example, um, you know, I'm Thai as well. So Southeast Asians, right? Or um, if we're going to look at the English or any culture, but we know there are certain things that stereotypes are based off of. Well, what do we do? Do we just pretend those stereotypes don't exist? One of the stereotypes that I find the most hilarious and the most apt of Black folks in the South is a love of grape soda. Well, I love grape soda and it tickles my family that I love grape soda. And it's something that I learned from my Black dad. Okay, so that's a stereotype, right? So should I just reject that completely? Is that is that is that building upon oppression to chuckle at it? Is there a way to redeem that stereotype? Or are we just doomed to repeat the ugliness that goes with anything where we say, this is true of a culture, right? And so you start to unravel at that point. Mm -hmm. And as as any good uh, academic or researcher, you you start to realize, okay, I have to take a breath here because I don't even know what the question is anymore, right? I don't even know what I'm asking anymore. So in researching and trying to get out of that pit uh, and asking the Lord to show me, I was pleased to discover the prototype theory. Which says that, one, the brain actually creates categories for life. We need to be able to categorize things. If we had to rediscover what a spoon was every time we went to eat, it would take far longer than being able to do this minuscule process in our head of, I'm eating soup, I need a spoon. Easy, right? If we Mm -hmm. had to reassess the difference between a chair and a table every time, well, we'd probably end up making a fool of ourselves and sitting on tables a lot more often or trying to eat off of chairs. Um, we need these categories. They're actually an important part of the way our brain sorts through all the information we have. And when it comes to prototype theory, there's a sense of not only is this important and good, but it can be used to our advantage because then we can know and grow and get more knowledge. We're starting with categories, we're adding the categories. Where I fit that in with cultural stereotyping is, okay, there are some general truths that can be applied to a culture. So if we can acknowledge two truths about something that we deem to be true about a culture, one, this is general. This is not true of every person in that culture. And two, if we can embrace the neutral or positive prototypes of a culture, then I think we can get around just looking at one culture and saying, well, we know all there is to know about them. So all that is to say, I think when I and we all do, right? When we stereotype someone, we look at them and we think, one, I know everything I need to know about you, case closed. And two, we further entrench ourselves in a good versus bad binary in a, I'll put you in my good category or my bad category and I can go about my day. I think the way that we see God redeem that broken instinct is to say instead, okay, if I embrace prototypes, I'm going to say, this is a prototype that can be generally true of a culture and it is not a negative. It's probably a neutral, it might be a positive. And that is the beginning of the conversation now for me to ask one, how does this individual that I'm working with do they either fit that prototype of their culture? Do they also love this type of food? or do they also have this type of indirect communication? Or are they very different? and how can I then begin to know them better? because of how they do or don't fit in that category. And then what I'm doing is I'm broadening the conversation, right? Mm. Instead of narrowing it, I'm creating more categories.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. It it reminds me of, I read this book by Natalie Carnes, who's an art historian at Baylor, or maybe she's a theologian. She's a theologian at Baylor. And she compares these two types of iconoclasm. Trust me, this will connect somehow. Um, And she says (laughs) that, you know, there is sort of the kind of iconoclasm that says, not X, but Y. And so it's trying to, you know, Mm -hmm. remove slaveholders from pedestals, you know, this sort of Mm -hmm. tear down the icon, you know, eventually there's also another kind of iconoclism that says, yes, X, but also Y and Mm Z, right? So Mm -hmm. in places, it's sort of like you said, the danger of a single story. So rather than just telling this one story, that, but also this, and also this, and also this. So it sort of situates the thing that you're looking at, Um, And so there are things that need to be pulled down from their pedestals, to be sure. So we need the first kind of iconoclasm, but we also need the second kind that places things in context. And I wonder if that also is a connection to the sort of stereotype, which is limiting and needs to kind of be almost like, you know, proven false. And then also a prototype, uh, which is giving you a starting point, but also saying, but be open to the fact that it's so much more than this.
1: Exactly. Uh, that is that is very well succinctly put. Thank you. <laughs> that's, that's, I think, what I was trying to say. And I think the fact that we mixed folks tend to do that so naturally. So again, a prototype of mixed folks would be that we often do that naturally because we have to, mm. right? And so then the question that as I'm thinking about the mixed folks I know is, okay, well, I don't want this to de-evolve into a stereotype. I don't want to assume, and I often do, and I have to repent of that, that every mixed person I know is all about nuance or, you know, does this naturally or is comfortable with the fluid in between. Um, So then my question entering into a relationship, into communication, into knowing a person who is also mixed or multi-ethnic or whatever they prefer to be called better is to ask myself, do they sit with this prototype or do they have a different story that they tell? And how can I listen and hear that well, instead of just assuming, oh, they're mixed. I know all I need to know about them, even in a positive way, right? Which I think is how we answer the model minority myth. Mm. Oh, well, isn't it nice to think about Asians as being hardworking? Okay, no, that's still a stereotype because you put me in a box. You've decided you know what you can do with me, what you should do with me, and what you want to do with me, and you're done. Mm. And instead pushing back on that and saying, no, no, that's a stereotype. The prototype is... X, Y, or Z. And let me tell you how I do or don't fit with that. Which, by the way, this Asian, not good at math. Just FYI. Yeah,
0: same, same, same. (laughs) Um, Let me ask this question just because I'm I'm anticipating the sort of things that people might think listening to this Mm -hmm. conversation. And one of the things which you address in the book is something like, well, Shouldn't your identity in Christ be the thing that you focus on? Why why are mm-hmm. you focusing on ethnicity? But that this is clearly something that is intended to bring people together. So mm-hmm. how do you respond to that objection that says, you "No, know, why are we making such a big deal about our differences? Um, right. Why don't we just focus on our identity in Christ?"
1: Yeah, it, it's a good question, and it is often rooted in a desire for unity, and in in some folks even genuinely trying to understand. I have learned wisdom eventually, finally, somewhat, now that I am getting into my middle-aged years. I like to just let Jesus answer that question. And I think Jesus makes it pretty clear when he, before time began, deigned to enter our humanity as a mixed Middle Eastern brown man. Um, I think that speaks pretty clearly when, and obviously I'm being a little bit snarky when I say all that, but I think when you start to stop and ask yourself, if we were all supposed to be the same or only think about God and who we are in Christ, Christ wouldn't have come as a human, not just because of soteriological reasons, substitutionary atonement, you know, he needed to be that perfect sacrifice who would come and and atone for the first Adam's mistakes. Uh, But I think, He wouldn't have come as human because to be human is to be finite, to be limited, and to be some things and yet not others. He came as a man. Well, that means he didn't come as a woman, and that doesn't mean women are any less, right? But it means that he was incarnated in a finite, limited body. He didn't come in a certain he came in what we now term biblical days, right? But he came when he came, and that means he wasn't alive. Before that, he wasn't uh, alive and embodied on the earth. Now, in the year 2021, he came at a specific time. He limited himself to that time. That means he had certain cultural norms. That means he dressed a certain way. It means he thought certain things. He spoke certain languages. Um, He came as the god of all gods, king of all kings, but he spoke presumably three different languages, and that was it, right? He spoke Greek, he spoke Hebrew, apparently he spoke Aramaic, at least when he was most heart-wrenchingly traumatized <laughs> is when, interestingly enough, that's when Aramaic came out of him, Right. So, so he limited himself, and yet, and yet, and here's the fun part, he also was mixed. So on the one hand, he came in a way that said, there are some things I am and some things I am not, and that doesn't mean that those other things are not valuable, it just means it is what it is. I'm a limited, finite person insofar as my body, insofar as I have veiled my deity and clothed myself in this human body for the love of my people. But he also came as mixed. And in the same way that he delighted before time to enact this plan in which he would come enrobed in flesh for us, he also let set out his lineage. And it's a lineage that's pretty modeled if you stop and think about it, right? And this is something that I think is getting preached more and more, something that I'm delighted to be able to preach to people. It's a mess. And God did that on purpose. Again, there's so many reasons for why you say, okay, is the Bible real? Well, if I wrote the Bible, I wouldn't have included the disciples, you know, not believing poor Rhoda when Peter came. Or even more so, the disciples believing the women when Christ was raised from the dead. You know, there are so many things you wouldn't have included. And one of them would have been, again, focused in a lot of ways around women because women were so disdained and still are in much of society. He had four non-Jewish of some dubious character, four mothers. He was mixed, which really just starts to blow your mind the more you ponder it. And it's beautiful if he really wanted us to all be the same, wouldn't he just been the Jew of Jews? What, couldn't, couldn't he have been that? I mean, he was a descendant of David. Oh, but wait, hang on a second. And this is where I get really riled up. His mother was Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah, the, I'm sorry, what was that? The Hittite. Bathsheba, who was, by all accounts, in power dynamics, raped by David, who then repented in sackcloth and ashes, and then was brought back into the fellowship of the Lord, and then conceived Solomon, who was also a king among kings of splendor. Like, Christ's history and background shows us how much God, one, loves diversity, and two, loves bringing people and enfolding them into his kingdom, even when they are sinners, even when they are uh, the most miserable of failed Jews, and even when they are the most hopeful and needy of Gentiles. Well, you know what? If that's the kind of focus we have on Jesus, then maybe we are both asking the right question, myself and you, and this hypothetical person. Doesn't God just want us to focus on Jesus and pursue unity? He does. He a hundred percent does, but he didn't send a boring, whitewashed, simple savior to us. And I think that's the answer.
0: Amen. Yeah, (laughs) that's good. Yeah. I always love talking about the day of Pentecost. And I think you notice in your book too, but the fact that it's not a single language, you know, that Mm -hmm. everybody hears the gospel of Jesus in their own language, which means Mm -hmm. that every language can communicate something of the gospel And, you know, Christianity is always translated, has always, you know, rather than saying, you have to learn this language, we can translate the words of God into your language because God speaks your heart language uh, too. Um, Let me just ask one final question then uh, to you. What is sort of the the big piece of wisdom that you would love for the church to get about multi-ethnicity? Mm-hmm. And and the mixed blessing of it. If you could again, you know, maybe your elevator elevator talk uh, about your work. What, what what would you hope that the church would would learn or or start learning?
1: Yeah, that's so good. That's such a good question. And I'm trying to remind myself I'm on a very fast elevator, not a slow moving elevator. <laughs> I think the elevator pitch is not to be frightened of multi ethnic normativity. So I think there are two really beautiful parts, there are a million and one beautiful part of rejecting monoethnic normativity and embracing multi normativity. Two of them that I would draw out. One, for those of us who are mixed, we are not abnormal, we are not problematic, we are not aberrations. All of these other negative, ugly words that people apply to us, whether they mean to or not, actually we're the norm. Both culturally right? Multi-ethnic uh, folks are the fastest growing ethnicity in the United States. Um, they are the majority in many other places around the world, but also in terms of the church universal. Multi-ethnicity is the history of the church. It is the history of the world. Monoethnicity is actually the aberration. It's actually the newer thing. Um, separate but supposedly equal, which is a lie. That's the newer thing right? That's the aberration. And unfortunately, that's the aberration that is firmly centered in the United States and in the way our country was built. So just a word of encouragement to to you, to me, because we all need to preach the gospel to ourselves, to anyone out there who is multi-ethnic, multicultural, who is mixed. Actually, we've been made well and very well. Actually, we've been made in the image of God and in the lineage of Christ, who was himself mixed. We are good and we are very good. I think the other benefit for rejecting a monoethnic normativity, which is to say rejecting the idea that being one thing is normal and being multiple or two ethnicities is abnormal, is helping white folks especially dis- be discipled out of whiteness, which is not to center white folks, which is hard, right? Because you get in that whole discussion of if we're focusing on helping white folks Decenter whiteness, but we're focusing on them, we're recentering whiteness. But I think that's not necessarily true. I think that's a danger. But I think multi ethnicity or the embrace of multi ethnicity or the rejection of mono ethnicity is actually part of the answer to that, which is to say, when white folks are discipled back into actual ethnicity and out of whiteness, I think that's when real growth can happen. When white folks, as I see my husband doing, right? So my husband is white, my daughters are mixed. I'm mixed, but my husband is white. I see him starting to ask himself questions about the depth and the story of who his ancestors were in a way that helps him to still realize the very real white privilege he has, to not deny it, to not say, oh, I'm multi-ethnic too, right? Because that's not what he's trying to do. But to start asking himself, what does it mean to be of this particular heritage, Irish or Scottish or Dutch. I think when we remember that God has always intended for his people to be intermingling, to love each other well, to have uh, a fluidity of experience and of culture and of family, I think then we start to realize just how false monoethnic norms are. And I think that's when we're reminded of the kingdom. And I think that's what's beautiful about mixed people is that we're part of that. We're walking embodiments of that. We interrupt people's spaces. We interrupt people's assumption of mono-ethnic normativity, And I think that's part of where the kingdom breaks in and says, actually, God is not who you think he is. God is not who we think he is. He's bigger than that. Hmm.
0: All right. Our guest is Chandra Crane. She is the author of Mixed Blessing and also the host of the Mixed Blessing podcast, which you can find anywhere podcasts are found.
1: Yep, anywhere podcasts are found.
0: Well, Chandra, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on the In All Things podcast. Thank you, Justin. This has been great. Man, I hope you enjoyed listening in on the conversation between Chandra and myself. We've only scratched the surface, of course, of these important themes, and the conversation continues. And you can keep listening in by following In All Things or Chandra on social media by getting Chandra's book, Mixed Blessing, published by InterVarsity Press, or by checking out the Mixed Blessing podcast, which is hosted by Chandra. And it is available, like this podcast, wherever podcasts are found. But until next time, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Shannon Bisher, Emily Rowe, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org, or follow us on Twitter under the name et, in, underscore, all, underscore, things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.